Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Father, our hearts are full of praise. You are holy. You are a God above all other gods. We thank you, Father, for your presence among us. We thank you for your grace that is abundant. We thank you for your mercy that overflows. We thank you for your love that is never ending. We praise you, Father. We thank you. We love you. Now, Lord, we are going to open the word of God. And as we do, we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would see truth, that we would know your heart, and that we would hear the call of God upon our lives. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word and for the privilege that we have to share it. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I was thinking um, this morning as Andy was talking, um, we first arrived at uh, in Chandler, I think it was the last week in June of 2000. Uh, we were staying with Sherry's mom and dad down in Sun Lakes at their little house there. And we didn't have a house. Uh, we didn't have a car because we had given away my car that I'd used uh, as a courier. And uh, we just arrived here excited about the prospect of being a pastor again. As you know, I'd been out of the ministry for three years uh, because of my gambling addiction. But this was a brand new adventure for us. And uh, uh, the first Sunday, I think it was July 3rd, was the first Sunday that I was uh, preaching in there. And they had kind of a welcoming and everything. And I, uh, a while back, I looked in my attendance records and we had 37 people there that day. And, uh, and I thought, wow, this is really unimpressive. And, um, you know... <laughs> What, what is this a church or a small group? Uh, anyway, and 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 but but that's that's and we were in the strip mall and it was uh, but it was still exciting and we knew that God was wanting to do something and and to see what God has done these last twelve years has been remarkable. So I thank each and every one of you for your expressions of of grace and uh, for your participation in the ministry that we call Hope Covenant Church. Uh, today we're continuing our series of messages on finding direction. The parables of Jesus. And today we're looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke chapter 18. I'd like to read that text for you as we begin our message today. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Uh, this is the word of God for you. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus continues, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I've entitled this message this morning from this parable, The Cancer of Pride. 
Vince Lombardi, when I was growing up, was one of my idols. Uh, he was the coach of the legendary Green Bay Packers in the 1950s and 1960s, winning several NFL championships. And then when we began, we joint merged the NFL and the AFL. He won the first two Super Bowls in 1966 and 1967. On one particular championship Sunday, Lombardi, who was known for his monstrous ego, his unwavering self-confidence, and his gargantuan pride, told the press that he believed that they were going to win even though they were the underdogs. His wife was unable to attend the game that day, so she didn't see all of the excitement, but Green Bay won the NFL championship and had a great party, a great celebration afterwards, and Lombardi, as always, believed that uh, he was the main reason that they won. When he got home, his wife was already in bed, fast asleep. Uh, But his ice-cold feet, when they touched her legs, she said, God, your feet are cold. Quick as a flash, Lombardi replied, Honey, when we're in bed, just call me Vince. That was Vince Lombardi. Pride has been elevated to the level of a virtue in the world especially in the area of sports and entertainment. We chuckle at stories of proud people like Vince Lombardi. But when we're confronted with pride on the other end, someone who looks down on us or looks down on those that we love, well, that is another matter. Those three years from 97 to 2000, I was not able to work in a church setting, so I got a job as a courier for Quicksilver which is a courier company in Minneapolis-St. Paul. In fact, I believe they're making their inroads into Phoenix. I saw a car just the other day, a Quicksilver car. Anyway, I worked as a a courier, and uh, it made good enough money for us to pay our bills, and so that's what I did for those three years. One of our biggest customers was United Health Services, which was all the hospitals or many of the hospitals in the Twin Cities area. And one of the things that we did regularly was carry blood or even an organ from one place to another. And that was a very important part of our, uh, you know, job description. Well, this one particular day I was carrying blood and it was ASAP. It was something that was needed right away. And I was supposed to get the signature of the doctor. I was supposed to hand deliver it to the doctor, not to a nurse, not to administrative assistant, but to the doctor and the doctor alone. So I had to talk my way into that area. And people say, no, I can sign up. And I said, my instructions are only the doctor. And finally, when I got to the doctor face to face, he said, what, what are you wasting my time for? Somebody else can sign that. I said, Dr. So-and-so, I said, I was given instructions. Only you can sign for this. And I'm supposed to hand deliver it to you. He said, you mean to tell me that a courier is going to tell me how to do my business? He said, what are you, 45 years old, 50 years old, and you're a courier, and you're telling me my business? Now, you know me well enough to know that I'm a very humble guy. I was seething inside. I wanted to tell him, listen, pal, I've got as much education as you do. Listen, I, you know, and I want all that. But this guy just crushed me. And finally, he just signed it and he just kind of waved me off like that. And I walked away from that feeling very low, very discouraged and very minimized. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt like that. But that's what the cancer of pride and the sin of pride does. When someone looks down on you because you're not at their level, at their place, and because of that, there's this sense of, I just don't belong. 
C.S. Lewis calls pride a spiritual cancer that eats up the very possibility of love and contentment, even common sense. Pride is the number one of the seven deadly sins in the Old Testament. It damages our souls and lays waste to everyone in its path. So this morning I want to look at this parable through the eyes of pride. And I want to look at two main characters and get a look at who they are and what they're doing and then bring that together. So the two main characters, the first one is the Pharisee. Now, Pharisees, as you know, and I've been very hard on them uh, in these 12 years of being a pastor, the Pharisees have your reputa- a reputation for being religious snobs, and it was a well-deserved reputation. Uh, they were called hypocrites by Jesus. Uh, the Greek word is upokritai. Uh, And that's where we get the word hypocrite. And it means one who wears a mask. Uh, The Pharisees were described by Jesus as whitewashed sepulchers. Uh, In other words, a place where there's dead bones, but on the outside it looks pretty good. And uh, so the Pharisees were known to be upocriti, hypocrites. They were known to have uh, beautiful robes on the outside with phylacteries from their arms and their heads and beautiful headgear and all kinds of wonderful clothes. But on the inside, there was something broken and something very dark. But these were the moneyed class. They were the the elite religious class. They were highly educated and they were tremendously respected by all people. They thought of themselves as models of virtue, holiness, and righteousness. And they simply believed from the depths of their hearts that they were better than other people. They were better than anyone else that wasn't a Pharisee, wasn't a man of God the way they were. They were grateful for their status. In fact, Josephus, one of the early first century, uh, he was a Hebrew author, uh, Uh, records a Pharisee's prayer this way. This is what one of the Pharisees used to pray. Oh God, thank you that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. Doesn't that just touch your heart, you know, prayer? So sincere, so beautiful, you know. God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. That's the Pharisees. On the other side of the temple was a tax collector. Now, if the Pharisees were models of holiness and righteousness, tax collectors were models of another sort. Greed, uncleanness, dishonesty. Now, imagine in your own mind, what do you think about the IRS? Okay, in your mind, uh, on April's coming around and you're doing your taxes and you look at your check stubs and you look at how much you gave to the government And as you know, the more you make, the more you give to the government, uh, unless you're a Republican, uh, uh, you know, um, politician. You figure a way out of that. Uh, But you you, so you have all of this. You have all of this money that you earned and so much of it. And when you do that and you write those checks and that that money is taken out of your checks, you just cringe. You say, this is not right. This is not fair. In fact, interestingly, the controversy over this health care thing. And it's a big controversy. Um, uh, really, when it comes down to it, the, the essence, the soul of the controversy is this. I don't want to pay any more to the government for anything, for health care, for anything. I, I, I'm tired of giving money to the government. Well, just multiply that times 10. And that's what people thought 
about tax collectors in Jesus' day. We bristle at the amount that we give to our government. But these tax collectors in Jesus' day, first of all, they were from the Jewish community. So these were among them. These were people among them, Jews among Jews, working on behalf of the man, working on behalf of the Roman government. The height of betrayal, all for a buck. They made themselves rich off of the misery of other, their own people. Shakespeare made famous a word for this. Anybody want to guess what that word is? Shylock, right? You know, we, we, we say somebody's a Shylock. You know, it's, it's really a derogative, derogatory term against Jewish people, Jewish money changers. But this was what was happening in Jesus' day. They were furious at this kind of betrayal, this kind of person that puts themselves on the side of the government in sight of their own people. So both of these men go to the temple to pray, to lift their voices in prayer. And what a contrast we see. The Pharisee, we are told, is standing by himself. Now, I looked into the original language here, and it's really interesting. When it says he was standing by himself, in the Greek it means literally this. He was praying to himself. Not standing by himself. He was praying to himself. Most likely, uh, Baraka was the name of the Hebrew prayer, a blessing. And it was a prayer that went like this. Blessed are you, Lord. Our God, King of the universe, who has, and then you list all of the benefits that God has given you. And in this case, uh, this Pharisee listed his benefits by saying how thankful he was that he wasn't like you and me. That's his benefits, right? So he said, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm, I'm, I'm not like those robbers, those bad robbers. By the way, he would have said parenthetically, these are the people that Jesus hang out with, you know, so... Draw your own conclusions. I'm thankful I'm not one of those robbers, one of those evildoers, one of those adulterers. And then he points at the, at the tax collector in the back of the temple. He says, and I'm really glad I'm not like one of those guys. So God, thank you that you've made me so wonderful, you know, so beautiful that I'm not like all of these people. He fasts, he tithes, he obeys the law, and uh, he gives even beyond the tithe. Thank God, thank God I'm not like other people. Thank God I'm not like lesser people. So last uh, Saturday, what was the beach we were at that second day, honey? San Jekyll Island. We were at a beach. Uh, we stayed at an embassy suite there with uh, Nathan and his family and Sherry and I and, and some other friends. And uh, we went to the beach and uh, we were out in the water just kind of floating. The waves weren't very big. It was very warm. Compared, I'm used to the Pacific, very warm waters. And we're just out there with the grandkids floating and talking, throwing the football around. And then there was another family there, too, and a man uh, that I had struck up a conversation with. We're just out there floating in the Atlantic and, and had a nice little conversation. And, and, uh, and then two families of African-American people, about 20 people, all came jumping in the water, playing, having a great time. Beautiful people, having a wonderful time. And this guy I was talking to, he said, I've got to get out of the water. He said, I'm not going to swim in the same water. And I looked at my, and I know I shouldn't have said anything, but you know me. I said, you've got to be kidding me. How does the water change when they get in? What if, I mean, he's already, probably already peed in the water. You know, that's what people do. And, you know, and so he's complaining about somebody else, right? You know, I thought the water was kind of warm where I was standing. And, 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 and so he said, I, I can't be in the water. And basically, and I said, I said, well, then you need to get out of the water. 
you and all your kids, you need to get out of the water because these people are just having a good time. And me and my grandkids were there. We're having a great time. We're kind of intermingling and talking. And it made me so furious. But that guy was a Pharisee. He didn't think he was a Pharisee. He thought he was a good Southern Baptist. They don't call them Baptists. They're Baptists. And he was a good Baptist. But I can't be in the same water with these people. That's the Pharisee talking. Now, we, we look at this and, we, and it just kind of makes you cringe when you hear the uh, Pharisee praying and talking and thinking, I am better than other people. Then Jesus turns his attention to the tax collector. But before he his words, Jesus paints kind of a vivid picture in three brush strokes in the text. He said, number one, he's a tax collector, a standing far off. He realized that he wasn't in the group. He realized that he was, he had, by his own, by his own job, his own position, he had put himself out of the elite, out of the inner circle. And so he stood in the back, alone, all alone, shadowed, not in front like the Pharisee, but in the back of the church. And then Jesus notes also that he does not raise his head toward heaven. See, the Pharisees, when they prayed, they would lift their arms and their phylacteries would fall down from their robes. They would lift their hands and their heads to heaven and they would cry out, Blessed be the Lord, the God of all creation. I thank you that you have not made me like these other people. That's the way the Pharisees would pray. But this man could not, it says. And it doesn't say that he didn't raise his head. It says he could not raise his head toward heaven. But he keeps his head bowed with humility and a great deal of shame. And the other thing he does, the text says, is that he is beating his breasts, which was a, a sign of, 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 of signifying repentance and sorrow over his own sin. And that's a snapshot of this man who is filled with remorse and shame. And then the man prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Probably the prayer was barely audible, but bending down his face towards the ground, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. No pride in what he says or does. His face turned down. Jesus tells us that he returns home that day. Listen, he returns home that day justified, forgiven, and redeemed. Now, how is it that a man that is so despised and his actions are so despicable that through this one simple prayer, hardly audible, this one simple prayer, somehow he goes home justified, forgiven, and redeemed. Despite being a traitor, this sinner goes home a beloved child of God. How does that work? Now, the, the parable on the surface seems simple enough. I hope it does to you. It, it did to me when I've, I've known this parable all my life. seems to be a clear lesson, right, that we should become like the tax collector, Right? Uh, not the Pharisee, but, but there's danger here. As soon as we hold the Pharisee and the tax collector up to inspection, as soon as we start beginning to say, okay, which one of these is better, aren't we in danger of falling into the same trap? Aren't we in danger of, of even if we're a tax collector, looking over at that Pharisee and saying, I'm better than you. I'm more sincere than you. I'm more transparent than you. I'm more humble than you. We have to be very careful. 
It's a double bind. If we take the parable seriously, we just cannot pray, I thank God that I'm not like a Pharisee. So we come to the story ready to judge the Pharisee. And truthfully, uh, many Pharisees were very sincere in their devotion to God. Let's, let's don't forget that. Uh, very sincere. And if we're honest, and I think we're honest, I think our congregation is honest, I think we all recognize that we have a little Pharisee in us. Well, I, I thank God like I'm, I'm not like my neighbor. You know, I, I, I hear him yelling and screaming all the time. I've seen the police cars out in front of their house and their kids just run wild. I, I thank God I'm not like my neighbor. Or we see a guy pulled over that was speeding on the highway and we say, well, I thank God I'm not that guy, even though you were going just as fast as he was. Or you say, I thank God that it wasn't my family that was hurt in the storm. And, and we are, we're blessed and we're thankful, but sometimes we fail to see the other side of the curtain. So it's October of 1989, you know the story. Our son, uh, Tyler, was hit by an automobile when he was on a bicycle. A day later, he was pronounced dead. And Sherry and I and Tammy and Nathan were grieving. But we had made the decision, because of a series of events, to, if he did die, that we would donate his organs. We had an organ donor card and all of that. And the kind of thing that you put in your wallet, and then you never, ever, 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 ever want to see it again or use it again, or even know that it's there. Well, we had to use ours, and we found out later that within an hour of us saying yes, the doctor pronouncing him dead, and us saying yes, within an hour, his heart was harvested, and it was uh, flown over via helicopter with a nurse to Loma Linda Hospital, where they do a lot of the transplants in, in, in Los Angeles area. And within two hours, that heart was placed in the body of a, 12-year-old boy by the name of Aaron Banta, who, by the way, is still alive today and has a wife and two kids. It's kind of a neat story. Sometime we'll tell you that. So um, here, just imagine the Banta family, by the way, they were Christians. Okay, so just imagine the Banta family is in there. They're told that their son Aaron is going to die within an hour if they don't get a heart. <laughs> How do you pray that prayer? You know, what do you do with that? God, kill somebody so we can get a heart. God, make sure somebody's hit by a, 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 a you know, on their bicycles, hit by a car. So that we, No, you don't pray. They don't even think that. But when they heard that a heart was available, they rejoiced and they were praising God and they were thankful. In the room, in the hospital room, as they were praising God and being thankful, you know, 1,200 miles away, Sherry and I and our family and our church at Lakewood Covenant Church, we're weeping and grieving and sorrowful. And sometimes you just need to look on the other side of the curtain. And that goes with other people. When we start judging them like Pharisees, when we start pointing out their behavior and saying, I just wish they were like me. I, w- I wish they were like me. That's when we have flipped the list in a negative way. We talked about that a few weeks ago. If the New Testament were like some hiss and boo melodrama from the Old West. The Pharisees would be the fellows in the black hats twirling their waxed mustaches and fingering their six shooters on their hips, right? It doesn't matter anything about their... other than we know that if they say anything, it's going to be bad and it's going to be ugly and it's going to be wrong. So that's 
the guys in the black hat. But suppose it was a different setting. But so, but suppose it wasn't a Pharisee. Suppose it was your sweet little old grandmother praying over the turkey dinner on Thanksgiving. Dear God, we are grateful that we are not like the other families we know. People who don't know you enough to offer thanks to you. Families that have fallen apart and their kids are running wild and they never gather around the table anymore. We rejoice that we went to church this morning to do what all people should do. We render thanks to you as the giver of all good gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is Grandma now. Not a Pharisee in a black hat. What, if anything, keeps her prayer from falling into the error of the Pharisee? Or does nothing keep it from that error? Is it the same mistake all over again? When and how does gratitude go bad? And what can we do to make sure that it doesn't go rotten? Beware, the, Pharisee, the, the parable would have us to believe. Beware, pride can be found anywhere. Now, now there's a twist in the parable, and the interesting twist in, in the Greek, again, is that this Pharisee is praying to himself. God was not the intended audience of the Pharisee's prayer. Uh, a prayer centered about himself, about his character, and about how thankful he was that his character was so pristine, so good, so great, that he was better than Everyone else, his prayer focused on himself, not on the goodness of God. This is the cancer of pride. It takes on many faces. The bad guy in the black ten gallon hat in the western, the grandma at Thanksgiving, the man floating in the Atlantic Ocean, making fun of African American children. Pride says, I'm better than you. It says, I've done it right. It says, please notice me and what I have done and how well my family's turned out. The pride of the Pharisee is in all of us. And the parable says, beware. And let me say a couple of things about pride. Pride is taking care of number one. The attitude of pleasing self. If our aim is to please self, we cannot please God. When you spend time or energy for, for personal um, formation in terms of getting people to know you and recognize you or for private gain, producing nothing for the community and nothing for the kingdom of God. Haven't you become a non-essential citizen of eternity? Pride is taking care of number one. Mickey Cohen was a, a gangster in Los Angeles in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Uh, Mickey Cohen was uh, asked to uh, go to, Mickey Cohen liked to hang around celebrities. He used to hang around Frank Sinatra and some of the other guys. And uh, Mickey Cohen heard about this young firebrand preacher in 1947 by the name of Billy Graham. And he said, I'd like to meet this guy. So they set up a meeting with Mickey Cohen and Billy Graham. And you know, Billy Graham was not in awe of Mickey Cohen, but Billy Graham did what Billy Graham does, right? Still does, and he's 90 some years old. Uh, he asked Mickey Cohen about his personal relationship with God, and Mickey said, I have none. He said, well, you can fix that today. So Billy Graham led him in a prayer to pray to receive Christ. And Mickey Cohen at least prayed the prayer out loud. And then he went off and he continued living his life the way he'd always lived his life. And he said, yeah, but I prayed the prayer. 
And Billy would say, yeah, but you haven't changed your life. God has still not formed you and changed. And then Mickey Cohen said something that was just hilarious. He said, but I, I believe that God wants me to be the very best Christian gangster I can be. <laughs> Here was a guy that didn't understand what it means to be transformed. Right? The pride of taking care of number one. But pride is also the itch for recognition. The Pharisee put me in the center of the prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like the others. Now, ask yourself this question. Do you know people who constantly put themselves in the center of conversation? Ask yourself that in your mind. Do you know people who constantly put themselves in the center of conversation? Now, if the answer is no, you're probably that person. So, be, you know, <laughs> be, 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 that's a boomerang conversations. You know, it's always going to come back to me. You, you, you've got cancer. Well, I've got a bunion. And it really hurts. You know, you lost your job. Well, yeah, but I didn't get a raise. You know, and it's always about you. It always comes back. Be very careful. Pride can be all about me. Pride is also a log in the eye. We seldom recognize it ourselves. Pride is the sin of comparison in which we compare our strengths with other people's weaknesses. You ever done that? Sure you have. We do that. That's what proud people do. We compare our strengths with other people's weaknesses. The Pharisee compared himself to the tax collector. That's a slam dunk, right? A known sinner. Instead of comparing himself to what? A holy, righteous God. So my um, grandmother, back in the 40s and 50s, she lived in Spring Valley, California. Um, They moved out there when my dad was a teenager. And my grandma raised chickens. She had chicken coops in her back. I remember as a boy going to their, their big property and seeing all their chickens. And what I, I recognized about the chickens is they have this, this, these coop rules, you know, chicken coop rules. And there was always a, a number one boss chicken. And he told everybody else what to do. And I don't know how they did that, but basically by pecking him on the head, you know, say, do what I say. And then there was a second one. This is where the word, the, the phrase pecking order comes from. And, and, but then, then there were all they had their pecking order. But then there was the, the, the runt or the diseased or the different color or the bad in athletics or the, the very unpretty uh, chick. And they were always the last. And, and that's the way our world works. And that's what this parable is about. Christ came to abolish pecking orders. If you compare yourself to a holy and righteous God, you don't have time left. Compare yourself to somebody else. That's what the tax collector did. He compared himself to a righteous and holy God. And for that person, the only prayer that you could possibly utter is, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, the problem with the Pharisee is not pimples on the skin. He didn't have any. But his problem was in his bloodstream. His problem was in his heart. His problem was in that whitewashed sepulcher, that tomb that was dead. Pride, confident in his own self-righteousness, a critical spirit, their vice, that person's vice versus my virtues, that self-righteousness, and that's the sin of cancer. Haddon Robinson uses a phrase, he says, he calls it, the smell of grace gone putrid. We experience grace in our lives. We all do. 
Everyone in this room has. And grace is not is way beyond forgiveness and mercy. Grace is giving you something that you don't deserve. It's giving you life everlasting, giving you forgiveness of sins, giving you uh, eternal life, giving you all these things that you don't deserve. That's what grace is. And, and, and here's what happens to people that have been involved in the cancer of pride. We want to be judged by grace. But we want to judge others by their works. We want to be judged by God. We want to be forgiven 70 times, 7 times. But we tell someone else, that's unforgivable. I will not forgive you for that. That is the sin of pride. And that's when grace has gone putrid. A man of privilege and grace. The elder son, in the story two weeks ago when I preached, the elder son did everything right. He was religious. He was righteous. He was a good son. He was a hard worker. He did everything right. But then when his younger brother received grace, the older son was angry. And here's what he said. What about me? That's the smell of grace gone putrid. And so I was a teenager brought up in Southern California. We didn't have much money, but I had all of the advantages. I went to good schools. I, I, I went to a good church. My parents were Christians. Uh, we, we just had everything going for us. And I remember as I got to be a teenager, I would watch, watch some of these other kids and see how they would misbehave. And I would look at them and say, how can you do that? I remember one time my friend Leroy and I, and I've told you the story before, my friend Leroy and I were at a bus stop and some kids were smoking. This is the eighth, seventh and eighth grade bus stop. Some kids were smoking and we went over there and told them not to smoke because God hated it. And they told us something I'm not going to tell you. And so we beat them up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the name of Jesus, you know, we beat you up, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know what? And, and we all laugh because we've all done. But that's, that, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the stench of grace gone putrid. We uh, go to an institution of faith. We go to a church. And I know some of your stories and sometimes some of the churches you've gone to. And you go to that church and at first they're good and they're, they're really into reaching people for Christ. And, and then they get comfortable and they get kind of organized and they get into maintaining. And, and they start looking at other people like, look at, those, look at those gay people over there. There's something really wrong with them. They're really, their sin is really black and awful. And look at those people over there, the way that they've been divorced. And man, they're just not part of us. And, and there's this, all this sense of self-righteousness and condemnation for even part of the body of Christ that are, are living out their lives, their faith journey in ways they don't understand and they don't agree with. And, and that's the stench of grace gone putrid. We all experience that. We all know that. We all have been that. So, fellow Pharisees, Pharisees keep their eyes on themselves or on their neighbor, but no eye on God at all. So where do we find this humility, this grace, this place of joy and thankfulness in the presence of a holy God? We find it at the cross. And this morning, we're going to celebrate together the Lord's Supper. And a little bit differently today, we're going to have you come forward to one of these two stations and and when you do, I want you to come with this sense of, Lord, I want my heart to be completely humble before you. I want the love of Jesus in my life to be so alive and so real 
but nothing else matters. There's no comparing. There's no looking around. There's no thinking I'm better than someone else, but we just come broken before a holy God and we receive his grace. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. After he had taken the bread, he took also the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink ye all of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. At Hope Covenant Church, we celebrate open communion, which means that if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, you are welcome to come to the table. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet a believer, I just want to invite you right now in the quietness of your own heart to say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, come into my life. I want you. I need you. I need that grace that Pastor Dwayne's talked about. You can do that and you can celebrate that by experiencing communion for the first time today. As you come forward, I invite you to take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and then you can go back to your seats as Scott and the worship team lead us in worship. So we invite you now, broken people, tax collectors all, I invite you to come to the table of grace to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm.